Hi everyone, thanks for listening to the Scandinavian History Podcast. Last time, we kicked off the Viking Age with a raid against the monastery at Lindisfarne on the northeastern coast of Northumbria. Today, we'll look at the first areas outside of Scandinavia to become the target for major Scandinavian invasions and colonization, namely the Northern Isles, made up of the Shetlands and uh, Orkney Islands, the Southern Isles, referring to the Hebrides and the Isle of Man, and finally, the island of Ireland. Episode 3, Go West. The Vikings called the archipelagos of the Orkney Islands and the Shetland Islands off the northern coast of mainland Scotland, the Northern Isles. These are the closest parts of Scotland to Norway, and these islands experienced the first and most long-lasting Scandinavian influence of any part of Scotland. The Shetland Islands are located only about 300 kilometers west of Norway, and in favorable conditions, they could be reached in 24 hours from Hordaland in a Viking longship. The Orkney Islands are another 80 kilometers further to the southwest, and from there, it's only a skip and a jump south to the Scottish mainland. For the sake of symmetry, there were also Southern Isles, made up of the Hebrides, some 180 kilometers west of Orkney, and the Isle of Man, located in the Irish Sea, roughly equidistantly from modern-day England, Ireland, Scotland and Wales. If you don't have an immediate mental image of the geography, don't worry. I posted a map on the Scandinavian History Podcast's Facebook page, facebook.com slash Scandinavian History Podcast. Scandinavians had been trading with the British Isles long before they started to plunder there. Archaeological evidence, combs of reindeer horn and that sort of thing, showed that there were connections between the Orkney Islands and Scandinavia as early as the 7th century, most probably from Norway, since it's not very far across the sea from Western Norway. No later than toward the end of the 8th century, more or less at the same time as the raid on Lindisfarne, the first Norwegian colonizers started to settle the islands. And this was a significant demographic moment, not just a handful of Vikings setting up shop to shorten their commute to the best region for plundering. In fact, during the Viking Age, we see the largest wave of immigration from Scandinavia in recorded history before the mass immigration to America in the 19th century. When Vikings later settled in Ireland and England, there was a surplus of Scandinavian men inevitably marrying local women, who would bring up children speaking the local language, and even though they were probably bilingual for a generation or so, they were soon absorbed into the local Celtic or Anglo-Saxon culture. But the situation on the North Atlantic Islands was different. From the Shetland Islands to Greenland, Scandinavian immigration took on the character of a colonization project, where mostly Norwegians soon overwhelmed the small previous populations and established new versions of the Norwegian society they'd left behind. Whole families would come to settle, and so these colonies kept their Scandinavian culture and language for generations. There's even a theory that there was a genocide and or expulsions on a massive scale in these islands during the Viking Age. According to this theory, the Scandinavians arrived and either killed or drove off all the original inhabitants of the islands and settled there themselves. Those in favor of this theory point to the almost total replacement of pre-existing place names by those of Scandinavian origin throughout much of the region. For example, among the Shetland Islands you find Husay and Walsay, and some of the Orkney Islands are called Ailsay and Sande and Westeray, which for Scandinavians even today are 
easily understood to mean House Island, Wales Island, um, Eagles Island, Sand Island, and the Western Island. Genetic studies have also shown that Shetlanders have almost identical proportions of Scandinavian matrilineal and patrilineal ancestry, suggesting the islands were settled by both men and women in equal measure. And that unlike many other places in the British Isles, we don't see just Scandinavian men marrying local women. Here we have proof of both men and women coming to colonize the Northern Isles. You could, of course, argue against the genocide theory and say that it's enough that these Scandinavians became dominant of the relatively sparsely populated islands in order to change various place names. And the mere existence of Scandinavian women doesn't really prove genocide either. But it is a fascinating theory, albeit controversial and wholly unproven. But genocide or just mass immigration, either way, the end result was that Scandinavians took over and set up societies of their own, very similar to the ones they had left behind. Also in the Hebrides, the obliteration of pre-Scandinavian names is almost total. There are frequent references in early Icelandic history to slaves from Ireland and the Hebrides, but interestingly enough, none from the Orkneys. Gaelic certainly continued to exist as a spoken language in the Southern Hebrides throughout the Scandinavian settlement period, but linguistic evidence would indicate that it had a lowly status compared to Old Norse, spoken by the Scandinavian settlers. As so often is the case regarding the Viking Age, the written record is scarce and what little sources we do have are unreliable. These sources include a handful of local chronicles from the British Isles and the Scandinavian sagas, in many cases written hundreds of years after the events they describe and in places located hundreds of kilometers away. One of these sagas is the Orkneyinga saga, which outlines the lives of the Scandinavian rulers of the Northern Isles and how they came about their earldom, the earldom of Orkney. Not the most reliable source, especially not when describing the early days of the earldom. Like so many other sagas, it's not contemporary with the events it describes and it was composed in Iceland, far, far away from Orkney. With that caveat in mind, the Orkneyinga saga describes how, when Harald Fairhair united most of Norway and became its first king in the year 872, many of his opponents fled across the sea. Some ended up in the Northern Isles. Apparently, some of them continued to harass King Harald by raiding Norway, and at some point the king had had enough. He equipped an expedition to ferret out his enemies in the Northern Isles. First the Shetland and Orkney Islands were cleared of his enemies and the islands themselves claimed for Norway. Rangvald Eysteinsson, the Earl of Møre, a region in western Norway, accompanied the king together with one of his sons, Ivar. During the campaign, Ivar was killed and as compensation, King Harald granted Rangvald the Northern Isles. That's the way the Earldom of Orkney was established, at least according to the saga. Luckily for Rangvald, he had more sons than the dead Ivar, and to settle the issue of succession to the title Earl of Orkney, he went back to Murray and summoned his other sons. He asked which one of them wanted the islands, but Thorir tried to get out of it, and it was pretty clear he preferred to stay in Norway. The next in line, Rolog, really had his sights set on the newly discovered Iceland instead. Then Einar, the youngest of Rangvald's natural sons, stepped up, and offered to become the Earl of Orkney. Rangwald was skeptical and said, Considering the kind of mother you have, slave-born on each side of her family, you are not likely to make much of a ruler, 
But I agree, the sooner you leave and the later you return, the happier I'll be. Not exactly a ringing endorsement. Despite his father's misgivings, on arrival in the Northern Isles, Einar fought and defeated two Danish warlords who had taken residence there. Einar then established himself as the Earl of Orkney and founded a dynasty which retained control of the islands for centuries after his death. A good story, but almost certainly completely fabricated. The Earls of Orkney take their first tentative steps out of the mists of mystery and into the glaring sunlight of documented history with the death of Earl Sigurd Lodverson in the year 1014 at the Battle of Clontarf. We'll get back to that battle in the next episode, but I just want to mention that even though Earl Sigurd was supposed to have been baptized, more or less against his will, but still, the notoriously unreliable Orkneying saga reports that he died clutching the raven banner of Odin, the Scandinavian god of war and the master of Valhalla. Despite nominally being vassals of the Norwegian king, in practice the earls of Orkney were probably more or less independent rulers, at least until the mid-11th century. But at the end of this century, the golden age of Orkney independence was over. Not only did the Norwegians start to assert their rule, but in 1196 William I, King of Scots, also known as William the Lion or William the Rough, forced the Earl of Orkney, Harald Madalson, to recognize the Scottish king as his feudal lord, since the Earl of Orkney also controlled land on the northern Scottish mainland. In 1231, the line of Norse earls, unbroken since Rungwald Eistinson, ended with the murder of John Haraldson. The Scottish parts of the earldom was granted to Magnus, second son of the Earl of Angus, and only five years later, in 1236, King Haakon IV of Norway confirmed him as Earl of Orkney as well. From then on, Scotland more or less controlled the Orkney Islands, but Norway still claimed nominal sovereignty. In the 14th century, Norway still treated Orkney and Shetland as a part of Norway, but Scottish influence and interest in control was growing. On the death of Haakon VI in 1380, Norway formed a political union with Denmark, and the new Danish rulers weren't all that interested in these far-off islands. When King Christian I of Denmark and Norway was scrambling to find money for the dowry of his daughter Margaret, who was engaged to James III of Scotland in 1468, the Danish king pawned Orkney and Shetland to the Scottish crown. This upset the Norwegian Riksråd or Council of the Realm, which hadn't been consulted or even informed that parts of their kingdom was pawned off in order to get the Danish king out of financial problems. It didn't help much that King Christian apparently treated this as a temporary state of affairs. He had secured a clause in the contract with the Scots which gave him, or his successors, the right to redeem the islands for a fixed sum of 210 kilograms of gold or 2,310 kilograms of silver. The Scottish crown had also been forced to promise to retain the Norwegian language and laws of Norway in Orkney and Shetland. But, since the money was never repaid, the islands remained a part of Scotland permanently. In 1471, the Northern Isles were directly annexed to the Crown of Scotland, an action confirmed by the Scottish Parliament in 1472. We don't know exactly how or when the Southern Isles, consisting of the Hebrides and the Isle of Man, were conquered by the Vikings, but it's likely that Scandinavian hegemony was significant on the western coast of Scotland already by the year 872, when Harald Fairhair became king of Norway. The Isle of Man may also have been taken by the Scandinavians in the 870s 
and was certainly held by them by the year 900. Much like the Earls of Orkney, the Kings of the Southern Isles, as they called themselves, exploited the fact that their nominal feudal overlord was far away in Norway. Parts of the Southern Isles were also intermittently under the control of the Viking Kings of Dublin that we'll talk about in a little bit. And as the Scandinavian power in Ireland waned, various High Kings of the island also seemed to have controlled the Isle of Man from time to time during the 11th century. In the year 1095, the King of Norway Magnus and King Edgar of Scotland agreed on a treaty. The Southern Isles would be controlled by Norway, but mainland territories would go to Scotland. As a part of this agreement, the King of Norway continued to be King of the Isle of Man, at least nominally. From the mid-13th century onwards, Scottish monarchs increasingly sought to take control of the islands surrounding the mainland. This happened in parallel to the similar development in the Scottish relations to the Earl of Orkney that we discussed just a few minutes ago. In the Treaty of Perth of 1266, King Magnus Lagerbote Olafsson of Norway surrendered his furthest Norwegian possessions, including the Isle of Man and the Hebrides to Scotland, in return for 4,000 marks sterling and an annuity of 100 marks. The Scots also recognized Norwegian sovereignty over the Orkney Islands and Shetland Islands. Even though this spelled the end of Scandinavian political control, cultural influence lingered. For instance, the Old Norse language spoken by the Scandinavians may have survived as a spoken language until the 16th century in the Outer Hebrides. In the Northern Isles, the local version of Old Norse lingered until the end of the 18th century, when it finally died out. But the local dialects of the Scots language, collectively known as Insular Scots, retain strong Scandinavian influences to this day. For instance, a distinctive sing-song accent and many words of Scandinavian origin. Several Scottish clans also have Norse Gaelic roots, such as Clan MacDonald, Clan MacDougall, and Clan Morrison, to name three. There are also some Norse Gaelic surnames that survive to this day, for instance MacAskill, Macaulay, and MacIver. After the Northern and Southern Isles, Ireland was the first territory to bear the brunt of sustained Viking attention. But unlike the islands, Irish society was too strong and the Irish too populous to be replaced by new Scandinavian settlers. Gaelic culture survived, but the Irish did mix with the invading Scandinavians over several centuries, and this has left its mark both on the Irish culture and on the Irish gene pool. After the first successful raid on the monastery at Lindisfarne, the Vikings seemed to have turned their attention away from England for a few years. Instead, they focused on Ireland. No one really knows why, but one reason might be that in the year 794, the year after Lindisfarne, according to the Anglo-Saxon Chronicle, a small Viking fleet attacked another rich monastery only about 100 kilometers south of Lindisfarne. To the unpleasant surprise of the Vikings, here at Jarrow, they were met with stronger assistance than they had expected. The leaders of the Scandinavian raiding party were even killed. The Vikings, who escaped the botched attack against the monastery at Jarrow with their lives, had their ships beached when they reached the coast, and the crews were killed by angry local Northumbrians. This spectacular failure would actually be one of the last raids in England for about 40 years. Whether or not strong resistance in Northumbria was the reason, Ireland was a logical alternative target for the Viking raids. When you sail to the British Isles from Western Norway, you will typically first reach the Northern Isles, then you can sail down the western or eastern coast of Scotland. 
If you turned right instead of left once you reached Scotland and sailed down the western coast instead of the eastern one, Ireland is no further away than England. By the way, I say England, Scotland and Ireland, but those countries did not yet exist as unified political entities or even theoretical concept at the time when the first Viking raiders showed up on their shores. I allow myself this terminological anachronism to make it easier for you to understand what I'm talking about without constantly consulting a map of early medieval Britain. To say that Ireland wasn't a unified political entity at the end of the 8th century is something of an understatement. The political culture was deeply divided, divisive and violent. The island was divided between a number of petty kings who fought each other for control of as big a chunk of it as possible. There was also a high king, but that title was mostly symbolic and didn't in any way indicate overall control over the island. But from a cultural, linguistic and religious perspective, the situation was quite different. Ireland was homogeneously Gaelic in terms of culture and language, and people lived in rural communities, and the only larger settlements were monastic towns of varying sizes. The monasteries played an important part in society, not just in religious and cultural life, but also in terms of economy and politics. At the dawn of the Viking Age, Ireland was experiencing something of a golden age of Gaelic Christian culture, with several rich monasteries. These rich, but as usual poorly defended, religious institutions were of course a big part of the attraction for the Vikings, and yet another potential reason that the Emerald Isle became an early target for Viking raids. The first known Viking attack on Ireland is recorded to have taken place in the year 795, two years after Lindisfarne. Norwegian Vikings raided the Church of Lame on an island off the east coast of the mainland. St. Columba is said to have established a monastic settlement of Lame around the year 530. The year 795 also saw an attack on the monastery in Iona. It was geographically on the west coast of Scotland, but culturally it was very much a part of Ireland. It too was founded by St. Columba, and it was from here St. Aidan had come when he established his monastery at Lindisfarne. In 799, the monastery in Iona mentions wide-ranging devastation due to Viking raids along the coasts of Ireland. Iona was attacked again in 802 and 806. The last attack was so devastating that the surviving monks decided to abandon the place altogether. After centuries, this fixture of Irish Christianity was no more. The monks moved to Kells, and there they finished the book that would become one of the marvels of Celtic Christianity and would be called the Book of Kells and not the Book of Iona. For about two decades, the invaders confined their activities to coastal settlements. Raiding parties were generally small, and there is no evidence that any of them wintered in Ireland during this early phase of hit-and-run activity. Typically, the Vikings would arrive at a settlement without warning, plunder what goods and people they could, the people were usually sold as slaves, though notable personages were often held for ransom instead, before retreating to their Norwegian bases. This period lasted from 795 until 813, after which there was a lull in the attacks from 8 years or so. At least there is an 8 year gap in the sources where nothing is said about Viking raids. But if the Irish thought that the worst was behind them in terms of the Viking threat, they were sorely mistaken. The Viking raids on Ireland resumed in 821. Throughout the 820s, the pressure and threat of Viking raids grew. 
Settlements and monasteries all over the island, not only the coastal areas, were attacked. The Vikings were moving further inland to attack, often using rivers such as the Shannon and then retreating to the coast. No place was safe anymore. Still, the attacks were not considered an existential threat to the political system in Ireland as a whole, and so the local petty kings still preferred to wage war against each other and couldn't agree to unite against the Viking threat. At least not yet. If the chronicles are to be believed, things that were already pretty bad took a turn for the worse in the year 837. That year, a Viking fleet of a previously unseen size appeared off the coast of Ireland. It was led by the semi-legendary Thorgist, who brought over a hundred ships with him. Thorgist is the first person to be called a sea king in the Irish chronicles. A sea king was a chieftain who didn't rely on land for the basis of his power, but rather his strength at sea. So basically a glorified pirate. Before I go any further, I just want to point out once again that the exploits of Thorgist were recorded long after his death, and what was written was also filtered through anti-Viking sentiment and pious Christianity. So Thorgist was often depicted as a villain whose villainy goes far beyond just the willingness to kill and rob to gain riches and power. Whatever the truth behind Thorgist might be, we do know that Viking activity in Ireland was stepped up at this time. If Thorgist existed at all, he was either of royal descent back home in Scandinavia, or pretended to be so in order to unite local Vikings behind him under his control. And it worked! Under his leadership, the Viking attacks became coordinated and even more devastating than before. Thorgist, or whoever was leading this new wave of attacks, had detailed knowledge of Ireland in terms of suitable targets for raids and the best time to strike. Maybe he'd been raiding in Ireland before, or maybe some of his men had, or maybe they were good at extracting useful intelligence from locals such as captured slaves. Anyway, Thorgist knew where to go and when to attack. The Vikings showed up just as the Irish were involved in a bloody war among themselves and were weakened and not likely to unite against this new threat. The King of Munster had recently attacked the High King in Ireland at Tara. I won't get into details about Irish internal politics at this time, but trust me, it was a mess. In the year 839, Thorgist and his men sacked and destroyed the monastery at Armagh. This had been the centre of Gaelic Christianity ever since the days of St. Patrick himself in the 5th century. After destroying the complex completely, Thorgist is supposed to have made a sacrifice to Odin on the high altar of the church. In other words, holy war. If, and it's a big if, the chronicles are to be believed. It's more likely, though, that the monastery was attacked because of its riches and not its symbolic importance for Gaelic Christianity. The sacrifice to Odin might also have just have been added by later chroniclers as a dramatic touch. As usual, the Vikings most likely weren't out to deliberately humiliate the Christian god or to desecrate holy places. They were after easy plunder and couldn't care less what symbolic importance the victims invested in the gold, silver and wine that they took. Anyway, Thorgus stayed the winter in Armagh, and more and more Viking longships arrived to join him and his expedition. This whole staying the winter business was new in Ireland, but Norwegians had done so in the Northern Isles before, obviously, and Danes also on the continent. The wintering in Armagh wasn't to be an isolated incident. It became a thing. 
Gradually, the Irish started to worry that maybe Thorgist and his men had come to stay, to conquer. The Vikings who started to winter in Ireland set up walled camps, so-called long forts. There, they could spend the winter recuperating and mending their ships, and then resume raiding the following season without having to sail all the way to Scandinavian back again in the spring. These long forts were fortified camps set up on sites that were easily defended, sheltered, and gave immediate access to the sea. They would be of great importance to the Vikings during their raids on Ireland. Beyond the military function, long forts were also essential to the economic prosperity of the Vikings. For example, it is clear that the earliest long fort settlements became major trading centers throughout Ireland. During this time, the Vikings also established extremely profitable trade relations with the Irish, which might seem a bit counterintuitive, but still. Many long forts didn't last long, some only as little as uh, one or two seasons, but others developed into large urban centers and significant Scandinavian settlements, such as Cork, Waterford, Wexford and Limerick, which remain significant urban centers in Ireland to this day. Snorri Sturluson, an Icelandic politician and author who we will have occasion to return to in later episodes, tells us that in the year 841, Thorgist seized the ecclesiastical settlement at Dublin and established a long fort nearby, probably at the present site of Dublin Castle. It was an excellent location from a strategic point of view, just south of Tara, the seat of the hiking of Ireland, but also at an easily defendable position with access to the sea and its offer of reinforcements and or an easy escape route if need be. Dublin soon became the most significant settlement for the Vikings in Ireland. It remained a Scandinavian stronghold and an important base of operations in Ireland and the British Isles in general for generations. The population of Dublin during the so-called Longfort phase is estimated to have been quite considerable, amounting perhaps to several thousands. It is assumed that streams of new immigrants from Britain and Scandinavia sustained the early settlement in the face of continuous hostility on the part of the native Irish. With time, Dublin became one of the most important urban centres in the whole Viking world. It was located perfectly, halfway between the raiding grounds in Europe and the Scandinavian home base, and its slave markets thrived. The Vikings not only sold local Celtic slaves, but also brought African slaves here, and coins from the Abbasid Caliphate have been found, indicating trade links with the Middle East as well. The town is also mentioned in Arabic sources, calling it the capital of the Vikings, even though this was no doubt an exaggeration of its importance. But it was an important town. Dublin and York, or Jorvik, as the Scandinavians called the town, would eventually become the centres of Scandinavian political, economical and military power in the British Isles. In the year 845, in the face of this new, truly existential threat, the kings of Munster and Tara agreed to unite in order to put an end to Thorgist. The king of Tara, Melchiknil, managed to get his hands on Thorgist. He loaded him down with stones and drowned him in a lake, Loch Owl, in County Westmeath. This was a boost to the Irish morale, no doubt. A series of Irish victories over the Vikings followed, including a temporary seizure of Dublin itself in 849. The Viking settlement was plundered and probably destroyed, at least temporarily, by Milchiknil, who was now High King. But killing Thorgist, whether he actually existed or not, didn't put an end to the Scandinavian incursions. More and more Vikings kept showing up on the Irish shores. 
By this time, the Vikings had become a fixed feature in Irish life. Next time, we'll continue the story of the Vikings on Ireland and see how these Vikings made themselves at home, starting to interfere in local politics. They will join Irish petty kings fighting against rival kings, switching allegiances whenever it suits them. We'll also see how these increasingly Gaelicized Scandinavians will fare against a new and unforeseen threat, a wave of fresh Scandinavian warriors coming to seek their fortune on the Emerald Isle. Be sure to tune in then.